And I wanted to start out at, uh, at verse 7 again, just briefly. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. You know, as we've been going through this epistle of 1 Peter, uh, the first four chapters have been, I feel, one of the most precisely condensed areas of the Word of God, if you will, of a man who had lived with the Savior for three years, who have heard him, who has undoubtedly been in councils with him that the Word probably doesn't share, we don't know. But what we do know is that this man had a firm grasp on the Gospel. This was the Holy Spirit writing through an apostle that was picked of God. Now, if if Jesus uh, chose these men, he said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. He specifically used each one of them, and his Holy Spirit moved through them as they wrote down the divine decrees that they saw and learned from the Savior himself. Remember, the scriptures, they came to realize were about him. They came to realize that these scriptures were about him, fulfilled in him. Wow, talk about the light bulb going on. A lot of these they didn't understand until afterwards, when the Holy Spirit came down and guided them into all truth and made them realize, didn't we do these things to him? You know, when when he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, they realized afterwards that their prophet, their prophet, Zechariah, prophesied they would do this, thy Savior would be lowly and gentle, riding on a colt full of an ass. Uh, Judas, 30 pieces of silver, and so forth. We can go all through the Word of God. So this man had lived with the King of Kings. He had lived with the embodiment of truth. He lived with the one whom the gospel enfolds upon. Obviously, we know as Christians, no Jesus, no gospel. That's just, you know... The way he starts out, what the gospel does. If someone were to come to you and say, well, does the gospel save? Absolutely it saves. Is that what, it, what all is what it does? Absolutely not. That's, that's what the gospel does is save you, gets you on the ground of the foundation. But now you're built upon the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the, the cornerstone. And he beautifully lays this out. Um, beautifully lays it out. Now we get to a part today, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. He beautifully lays it out. What is it to look like? We've been talking about this. I believe, personally, that as Jesus, we see in the book of Revelation and so forth, he's walking through the churches. He's, in fact, as C.S. Schofield says, where two or more are gathered, that's the simplest form of the church. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am right in the midst. We see in the churches in Revelation where Christ is walking through the midst of his lampstands. What is he beholding today? Now, most of you, if not all of you, I know I have been to several different through the years churches and, and, and read things of, and heard, you know, mint pastors expound the word of God. Would he be pleased? Would he be pleased with the way that, that his church one of the greatest things that I've ever heard of is when my pastor said, oh no, this is not my church. 
This is not, you know, the church of Brian Larson. This is God's church. We have prayed from the inception that it would be his church and he would run it his way. That he would have preeminence. Do you know that there is guidelines in the word of God regarding how God is pleased, how his church is run? He is pleased with, with how things run in his church. That means he's pleased with the way things run biblically as far as pastors, as far as elders, as far as how we view Satan and, and spiritual warfare, and how we view our victory in Christ. So today, I want to start in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. I pray that, uh, that you would be silently praying to the Lord all through this message because I think it's one that's sorely needed. Um, even though I'm fairly a young man, I have seen far too much destruction in the church itself and far too many people that have got up and in behind our pulpits across this land and probably across the world that shouldn't be there. You know, as I was talking to Greg earlier um, about a situation, if people don't care about the elderly, they should not be working in the medical institutions of our land. No wonder there's so much turmoil, so much turnover in these institutions. If you are born of God, if Jesus Christ reigns in your life, one thing that's going to be supreme is love in your life. It's not the do's and the don'ts. The world's good at that. Church is good at that. Roman Catholicism is good at that. We can go on and on. But one thing that surrounds the Christian, the born-again one of God, who has Jesus Christ reigning in his life as Lord and Savior, is love. What does that have to do with today? Everything. <clears throat> come before God this morning and ask him to open up our, our ears and our hearts to what he might have to say out of his word this morning. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for my brother's message earlier. You are so wonderful to, to, to correct us when we need it, to show us the way because you are the way. And yet, Lord, I pray that as we seek to understand your word. All you said is, he who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And Father, that's what we're asking this morning. To give us wisdom and understanding. To know your word. To go out and proclaim your word. To be Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to be ashamed, but with that boldness, as always, whether by life or by death, the Lord Jesus Christ will be magnified in my body. In his name I ask it. Amen. The elders, 1 Peter chapter 5, the elders who are among you I exhort. I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, 
nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Now, the reason for suspending it at verse 7, we'll get into that later, but I, I just want to start by saying Peter is, is hugely involved with submitting and humility in his letters. And if you've known him in his life through what we see through the epistles, those things I think he really struggled with. He wasn't accustomed to submitting. He wasn't accustomed to being humble. And yet... What a dynamic example God has of a man who has absolutely changed. I can't, wait to, I can't wait to meet him. He reminds me a lot like me. Only he, was, he showed his true feelings on his shirt sleeves where I was a little bit more uh, introverted, if you will. I had a problem with submitting. If it wasn't my earthly father, I didn't want to, I didn't want to listen to anybody. But we are exhorted here to submit. We are exhorted to be humble. And let me tell you, unless the love of God is working in your life, these things are impossible on your own to do. Impossible. The elders who are among you, I exhort. Who am also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed you understand what he says here? He is also a partaker. It's not that I hope to be a partaker. It's not that, well, you know what? If I'm good enough, if I pass my probation period, I will be a partaker. No, he's going to be a partaker because Jesus made him a promise. I will return. You are mine. But in, in, before we get into some of that, let's, uh, let's talk about elders, bishops, if you will if you have the, old, the King James, overseers. A pastor is a bishop. A pastor is an overseer. And a pastor is an elder. A pastor is one that is called to guard and to guide the sheep. I have four points I want to talk about this morning real quick about a pastor. Let me start off by saying, give me a little personal testimony. I never wanted to be a pastor. In fact, I did everything I could to steer clear from being a pastor. I was a Bible teacher. And I still am a Bible teacher. I teach the Word with conviction and preach the Word with fear. A pastor or an elder is called. He is called to a service that is not glamorous, nor should it be sought to be glamorous, 
but he served, he is called to a position of service. He is called to a position that he is held to a higher accountability because he is charged with teaching and feeding the word of God. That is a, that is a, a high responsibility. My four points are as this. Number one, a pastor is responsible to God for the spiritual welfare of the church. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and so on and so forth. He is responsible. Okay, now let's, let's break that down. When Paul says, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Is the church of God important to the Father? Oh, wow. You know, we need, we need our eyes unveiled. We need to get an understanding how important the churches are to God. He is responsible for what he says. He's responsible for being in the word of God. But before he becomes a pastor, God calls him to let the word of God do its work in the man. Because the man can lead only as far as he's gone himself. It is important. Paul tells Timothy, don't allow a novice to come in and, and usurp the authority. Because men were given the the, the the managerial, authoritative operation of the church. That could come as far as a deacon or whatever, but as far as a pastor goes, God is, makes him responsible for the spiritual welfare of the church. And again, we see that in Acts chapter 20. Number two, I want to say the pastor will incur a stricter judgment. If you're not willing to stand before God and give an account of how you have led this church by not only word, but deed by example, then you maybe should not be a pastor. Or as the Dr. Barnhouse used to say, if you can, if you can be content with being any other thing in life, whether it's a banker or a fireman or, or a, a respiratory therapist or what have you, that is probably what you should do. Because the pastor, as a God-called person to get under the church, to lift up the church, to bear the burden of the church, to feed it, and to pray for it, to be responsible for it. And knowing that a pastor will incur a stricter judgment. We see that in James chapter 3, verse 1 and elsewhere. How can a pastor truly understand this unless he's filled with the love of God and, the, and love for the people that are in front of him? You have pastors today that run off with of the church secretary, that have eyes for half the women of the congregation, that are, that are consumed with filthy lucre or money, that, that want to promote an agenda that don't want to lose a congregation so they're seeker-friendly. We could go on and on. These are atrocities in the church today. 
My pastor used to tell me that a pastor should should preach and teach every single time he's behind the pulpit as if it would be his last. Absolutely pleading and, 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 and sharing the love of God in Jesus Christ. Because I am going to stand and all pastors are going to stand before God one day and we're going to give an account of how we dispense the stewardship that we have been placed in. Are we willing to do that? Are we? Can we do that with a clear conscience? Can we do that knowing that we've been in the Word of God and that is our most prized possession? And I say this, because there are going to be a lot of people that stand before the Lord. A lot of pastors that are going to stand before the Lord. And it's not going to be well done. How good and faithful servant. You're going to incur that stricter judgment. Number three, a pastor is responsible to set an example of faith and godly living. He's responsible for setting that example for those that sit before him. You know, I've had this personally, and this happens more times than you care to want to know. I've had people that I've talked to that have come to me and confided to me that they will never step foot in a church again because pastors have set an evil, wrong example for them. And they've been hurt, and they don't feel that they can go and trust anymore. We need to be trustworthy. Remember those who have ruled over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for what would that be? That would be unprofitable for you. In the way that was Hebrews chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 13, verses 7 and 17. Paul, who has set the precedent, I believe, for what people should follow as far as their conduct. I want to find it here. I want to, I don't want to misquote the word of God, even though I know this by heart, because it has pierced my own soul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. That's a tall order. Paul is saying, follow me, follow my example. Can we say that? Can the, can the, all, can the pastors that you know say that? I hope they can. But I've seen a lot that, have, that cannot, that stumble and fall. We're held to a higher accountability. And those that you that want to be a pastor that are called, and I, and I believe that uh, there are those listening to me that are contemplating it, you should be an example. How you live in your home should be an example of how you live behind the pulpit and out of society. 
That's a tall order. Number four, I, I, I put that down here from the Word of God that a pastor should protect and guard the flock from all false teaching and harm. From all false teaching and harm. Yes, the overseers, that's their job. That's their job. An elder, an overseer, that is their job, is to guard the sheep, to guard the church from all false teaching, from all harm that would come in. They are the ones that sit between the, the, the congregation and the door, so to speak. If false teaching is going to come in this door, it has to go through me. It's going to hit me first. It's going to hit the eldership first. We're the ones that are going to take the blow. We're the ones that are going to defend. We're the ones that are going to fight for the, the protection of those that God has entrusted here. Here's where we start to get the division here between the, quote, laity and the church. It's nowhere found in the scripture. The church is all the body of Christ. We're all brethren that should love one another. And yet God has certain people that he calls for his reasons in certain positions. Do you know if you are an elder, you are a guardian? You are a guardian. I admonish you to know the word of God and to know your God, elders, because you will guard these people from all spiritual harm. Ezekiel has a wonderful couple passages about this. And I'm just going to lift this out. And it's Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. Talking about the pastors. He has a woe upon the false pastors. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what is driven away, nor sought that was, was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the, of the field when they were scattered. It's a responsibility to stay in. You know, as we used to talk about uh, frequently about husbands' roles to their wives. And what, what is the biblical role of their wife? You know, there's three avenues we talked about so often. And elders must do that to the church. Protect it from all costs. And I can guarantee you one thing, there is nobody that's going to get in my house and mess with my wife unless they go through me first. Are we willing to do that, pastors and elders, to your church? Do you love them that much? Are you willing to be the first one that confronts falsity? There should be no falsity, no harm that comes anywhere near your church, elders. You are called to protect them at all costs. So again, going through these four points real quick, a pastor is responsible to God for the spiritual welfare of the church. He's responsible of how he dispenses the word of God, but nonetheless, he lets it know that it is their responsibility to feed. I can feed you the word of God on Sundays, 
And yet, the prohibition, and this is what I want to cover in this first point as we go real quickly through these. Pastor, are you willing to dispense the fact that you must be checked out? No pastor or elder is worth his grain of salt that teaches the Word of God that is not willing to be checked out. He has no hidden secret. He has no doctrine that God has not revealed. He has not the room to expect oohs and ahs and this guy is great and wonderful. What he does expect is for his, the people that God places before him to check it out by the word of God. And that doesn't mean that we're supposed to be constantly uh, paranoid of our pastor or paranoid of who speaks, but that what he does that for a reason. Because he knows that when you check it out, the word of God, and God confirms what you've heard and been fed, that solidifies a truth. And that truth is because he loves you. And he wants you to know the truth. Any pastor or elder that teaches that does not say, the greatest thing you can do for me is not money, is not applause, but the greatest thing that you can do for me is check out everything by the word of God. If you cannot do that, don't sit under it. Again, the second point, him will incur a stricter judgment. Pastors or, or those that are contemplating, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to stand before God? That terrifies me. I remember talking to one pastor, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but it still horrifies me to this day. We were talking, and I said, doesn't, doesn't James 3, 1, beloved that not many of you become teachers because knowing that we'll receive stricter judgment, doesn't that produce a fear in you? And he looks at me and said, no, no. Hey, really? That does me. That, and that fear, not that I'm afraid, but that fear to stand before God causes the pastor the elder to dig into the word of God. Causes it to say, Lord, my life is in the palm of your hands. I'm that piece of marble. I don't care how much it hurts, Lord. You chisel away until Jesus Christ is the only thing they see. We'll incur a stricter judgment. The third, again, he's responsible for setting a godly example, a godly living. Look at me. Paul wrote to Timothy in, in Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. He says that it, he called it his gospel. Most everybody that I've taught that to have, has missed that. I hope you haven't. Go back, really, keep your finger there, just flip back to 1 Timothy. I want you to look at this verse. He is Paul, the great apostle, is talking to Timothy, who's eventually going to have charge over, over Ephesus and maybe, maybe other provinces. We don't know. But look what he says, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. After he's talking about what... But the gospel is for these men. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. That's how, that's how it, the gospel is committed to our trust. Jesus committed all of our trusts. But it's committed to the trust of the elder, the pastor that teaches to the point where he's going to incur a stricter judgment on how he has dispensed his precious word. 
The King James translator said it correctly in their preface. They call the Word of God, which excels all the riches of the earth. It is, it is an unfathomable rich, richness that this earth cannot afford. They got it right. And the last point, point four, I'll go over real quick. A pastor again should protect and guard the flock from all teaching or fall false teaching and harm. He says, so I'm an elder who exhort you. I'm a fellow elder. And I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You know, on the, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. With Peter and, and or excuse me, with James and John. And he saw... the glorified Christ, and yet he also was witness to his sufferings. Those who faithfully serve him will share in his glory. Jesus said this to the church at Laodicea in, in uh, Revelation chapter 3. He said, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I overcame and sat down on my father on, with my father on his throne. He was a witness. And he knows he's going to be a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. We will all be in glory one day. And we're going to stand before him. That's how important this is. You know, church is not just a place to go to, to satisfy your, your burning conscience. A lot of people have, you know, they go to church and they think they have fellowship. And this goes exactly what Mike was talking about this morning. We take this seriously. You know, they go to church and they, and they, and they have some type of meeting and they just talk and they eat. And they think that's fellowship. Well, yeah, fellowship in general. I can go to Yelks Lodge or anything else and get, and get, you know, whatever. But let me read you something. And I hope this really ministers to you because it has to me. I have been for several uh, weeks in these little epistles of John, 2nd and 3rd John. And he says in, in the end of 2nd John, his second epistle, as he's writing to the elect lady, and he says that he rejoices gracely, greatly because the children are walking in truth. But he says, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face. He was overjoyed with the fact of being able to speak face to face. He says in 3 John, his, his even shorter set, uh, third epistle. That's the famous epistle where he says, I pray to you, Gaius, whom I love in the truth that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. He said, I rejoice in this greatly, and I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. You could just see that he was just overcome with, with joyousness. He wanted to be with them. And, and uh, uh, he, he also even met in opposition um, in the third letter, but he also closes this one again. He says, I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak 
face to face. You know? But how can we come in fellowship if we haven't been, like Mike was saying, if we haven't saturated the Word of God, if we have nothing to share? We have nothing to share? Really? Who sets that example? Maybe sometimes in these churches we have really nothing to share because people don't aren't in the Word during the week and they come and they hear a watered-down week message from a shepherd that shouldn't be there. So then when the, when, when the people go outside these doors and they get hit with life and real issues of life, they don't know how to stand up. They don't know how to speak. They're not encouraged at all. They're not encouraged to read the Word of God. They're not encouraged to get into it. Peter and Paul both are prime examples. They did, they, their letters were one thing. But speaking face to face was was something that they yearned for. Paul Paul in his prison uh, cells, you can hear his cry. He longed to see them. He wrote a letter to to the to Rome. The letter of the Romans was written to prepare his way. Romans is sixteen chapters. That is a that is a. Uh, a work of art that we said before that excels everything. And yet he said he did that to prepare the way. Shepherd the flock of God, verse 2. Shepherd, which is among you, serving as overseers, not not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor being lords over those trusted to you. There we go with that word entrusted again. Being examples to the flock. How should a pastor or an elder conduct himself? Is the question. We are to shepherd. You remember when, when, uh, you remember when John in John, John 21, verses, verse 15, where Jesus, well, you know what? I'm going to read it here to you. You don't, have to, you don't have to turn. I don't want you to miss the train of thought here. Okay? Because this is one of the most tenderest times that a pastor, I think, can look at the Word of God and see for himself what Jesus desires from a pastor, how he calls a overseer, so to speak. Remember, the setting is that that Peter, James, John, and a few of the others went out fishing. You know, Jesus was still on this earth. Man, he was on this earth for 40 days after his resurrection. Don't get the resurrection and the ascension confused. He rose from the dead, but he was 40 days going in and out amongst whom he will, proclaiming and teaching yet the kingdom of God. Solidifying, if you will. Okay? By this time, he had fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself. He was the chosen one. He was the sacrifice that God was pleased with. So God rose him from the dead and he was going about proclaiming the kingdom. But listen to this. After, they were on the lake. I get emotional about this. They were on the lake and they were fishing and John says, hey, that's the Lord. After he said, children, have you caught anything? And John goes, hey, that's the Lord. 
And Peter is overwhelmed with, with emotion. <laughs> and he jumps into the lake, and he goes, and, and he gets to shore for everybody. And what do we see here? More fulfillment. Remember when God did this to Elijah? When, when, when Elijah was, was needed strengthening, and he built up a coals of fire, and he had food, and he says, come and eat, strengthen yourself. Jesus had a coal of fire there, and he had fish. This is the scene. Then they all afterwards come in to the shore and they're all gathered around them. Listen to this. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. And by the way, this is the vernacular of, of the discussion here of the feed, tend, feed. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. That's a calling. <laughs> Do you love me? Do you really love me? Are you not only willing to give your life for me, but are you willing to stand before me and give an account? Yes, Lord, you know all things and you know I love you. Elders and pastors, we need to feed, we need to tend, and we need to feed. Feeding, feeding, tending, feeding. Wow. A pastor, how is he supposed to conduct himself? He's supposed to shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Well, I would recommend a book by W. Philip Keller called Shepherds look at the 23rd Psalm, a wonderful book. A shepherd is to make sure that the sheep are healthy, to make sure that they have tender grass to feed in, to make sure that they are protected at night, to make sure that they are, they are not feeding in an area infested by wolves, to know that if they get covered with parasites, how to deal with them, the false teaching aspect of it, and so forth. It is a job that if you're not willing to work at, you are not called to be a pastor. You are not called to be an elder. It is a, a, a work. But let's see what this work in, involves or, or what is the outcome of this work. Pastors, are you supposed to be lords over those who entrusted you? Hey, don't, don't check me out. I'm the pastor. I know this. I've heard from God, and this is what's going on. Is a pastor supposed to, if he had on his wall of a pyramid of pictures, is he supposed to be at the top as being the guy? Or, is he, or should he be on the bottom as uplifting the body of Christ? But look at verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, and we all know that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You, elder and pastor, will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 
The special reward for faithful, godly, spiritual leaders is one of five crowns, brethren, mentioned in the scripture for faithful living. You can find them in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 Timothy 4, James chapter 1, and Revelation chapter 2 and 3, amongst others. Again, if you're interested in these, I, I, I have the notes. The reward for faithful, godly, spiritual leaders. It's a crown. And so not to just separate pastors and elders. I want to say to all those who teach the Word of God. You know, to mothers that teach the Word, the Word of God to their children. Or to, or to uh, any time that we have been able to instruct those. You know that I remember, remember in, in Acts 18. Apollos was a man who, they say was an eloquent man. Eloquent speech. And he was mighty in the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. And he, but he, he only knew the baptism of John. And he was teaching boldly in the synagogue until Priscilla and Aquila came and taught him the way more accurately. You know, those will receive a crown. They have taught accurately. What we need to realize is those that are in authority, those that teach the Word of God, are called to not only do it correctly, not only be responsible, not only be an example, and not only do it with, with all of their might, which the Lord supplies, but that they know that when their chief shepherd appears, they're going to receive a crown from him. Isn't that all worth it? I admonish those on the on that are listening, and I admonish to the one that's in this room today that they know who I'm talking about. There's a few of them. Take your calling seriously. More serious than anything you could ever imagine doing. And God will reward you not only with the sweet fellowship of himself, but the absolute joy of fulfilling your calling. So he goes on to say in verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Submit? There's that word again. Do you submit to those you sit under? Not that they can be Lord of you, because we've already taken care of that. I can submit to somebody I know that, that is not going to be Lord over me. I have submitted to my elders and God used them to mold and shape me to the pastor I am today and I thank God for them. Some commentators say that this word elder could also be elder in age. Either way, I believe in this context it's, it's an elder as an overseership, but either way. So we're to submit to your elders. Look at this. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. To submit. To submit is willing to follow their example. To submit is willing to accept what they are, what God has spoke through them or is speaking through them 
And submitting does not mean not checking out, by the way. I cannot stress that enough. Submitting means checking out. Search the scriptures. Jesus even said in a vernacular that nobody else probably told the Pharisees before. He said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But it's those that are bearing witness of me. Even the Lord Jesus admonished. You search the scriptures. Whether you have searched them, but search them again. If you believe Moses, you believe me for he wrote about me. I'm the fulfillment of what the written word is saying. Submit. Be humble. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility. If you want to be great, be humble. If you want to serve with everything that, that the Lord desires you serve Him with, be humble. I have been witness, and some of you have too, of the most cockiest people in Christendom that I know are pastors and overseers. And that ought not to be. God will take care of your money. God will take care of, of your ministry. God will take care of you, pastors and elders, if you would submit and be humble and realize that the money is not the issue. The size of your congregation is not the issue. The issue is if, is God going to be glorified through Jesus Christ, through the proper teaching and feeding and tending of the Word of God. He says in verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Look at that real closely. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We're not only to be humble and submissive to one another, but I would venture to say that the, to the amount that you humble and submit yourself under the mighty hand of God, pastors and elders, that's going to be the, the, the pattern or the indicator of how you humble and submit yourselves in your calling. If we are not humble and submissive to our Lord God, we cannot be humble and submissive to His creatures. That's just the way it is. Nor can a one authority that, that handles the Word of God, nor can he be that way with his wife. He must be humble and loving with his wife. How can one teach from the pulpit and go home and lord himself over his wife and be demanding of his wife? It goes in all areas. But he makes a promise. If you humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in due time. Listen to this, Isaiah 57, 15. This is one of the greatest verses, I believe, on this. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You want to be revived and refreshed? You want to have fellowship with the Most High? Humble yourselves. Submit yourselves. Some of you are abrasive. Some of you are full of pride. Some of you are too proud to allow God to run every aspect of your life. And you know who I'm talking about. He promises that He will sustain you 
revive you, energize you, dwell with you. If you would just humble yourself before Him. Some of us, I think, have to be taken to a Nebuchadnezzar experience <laughs> before, you know, we need to be brought to our knees. Are you that stubborn that you have to be brought to your knees before you must realize that this one that we claim to know inhabits eternity, inhabits eternity? That would be wrong for me to say inhabits time. Time is nothing. He inhabits eternity. He is eternity. He's the eternal God. No beginning and no end. Humble? As my mentor Dave Hunt used to say, humble? That's like, like an ant on top of a blade of grass being humble before an elephant about ready to step upon him? Humble? If we knew God, all we'd have to do is read his word about humility and we would, we would be humble. It habits eternity. We were born. He was not born. We were formed from the dust of the earth. He's our God. Think about that one. He will exalt you in due time. Hey, I'm going to exalt myself. You know? That's what pride does. Pride exalts ourself. That's as far as you're going to go. The Pharisees on the street corner love to give long prayers and wanted to show how spiritual they were. Jesus said they got the reward, which is their immediate replies, or their immediate, wow, look at him. That's their immediate reward, and that's as far as it's going to go. But if you want, uh, if you want exaltation from God himself, learn to be humble before him. And by the way, Brethren, that does not mean idolizing anybody. Wow. I want to talk a little bit, the rest of the remaining few minutes I have, about spiritual warfare. What does that have to do with the context that we're in? It has everything to do with the context that we're in. Because spiritual warfare is the plight of every born-again Christian whether we want it or not. If you have come to Christ and He is your Lord and Savior, you are in a battle. You've been put in a battle. And it's not up to us to give the rules of the battle. It's us to us to clothe ourselves not only with the armor of God, but to know our enemy. And it takes love. Let me tell you, all the saints of old that came off the battlefield that are, that are with Christ now came off and they were clothed not only with humility, but they were energized, if you will, with love. Think about that one. Our enemy out there does nothing but steal, kill, and destroy. I want to say this before I get into this. Satan opposes God and his people Listen to this, from Genesis to Revelation. But we, by prayer, the word, and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can defeat him. After all, Satan is a defeated foe. We must understand that. 
He's a defeated foe. We know why. Prophecy. We know the end of Satan. We know the outcome of all these things. He is the defeated foe. How do I know that? I know that because Jesus Christ on the cross fulfilled the first prophecy about Satan's demise. Way back in Genesis 3. He crushed his head. He dealt a death blow to Satan's head. He is on his way to the lake of fire right now. He's on that road. He's going and on that road, he's going he's going to just uh do the worst he can. The worst is yet to come in this last days when he in the last three and a half years of tribulation period he actually enters in and he controls, he possesses the Antichrist. It's gonna be the worst that's gonna be one of his last ditch efforts to overthrow God. But we know that his demise, he's the defeated foe. We need to understand that. And when he wins battles in our life, it is solely because we do not abide in Christ. Wow, that's a strong statement. Check it out. Read the word of God. Don't take my word for it. Every battle that Satan wins, it's because we have left off the path of abiding and stepped on to the path of our own selves for a time. And then we get spanked and we run back to our father. Then we can leave for a little while, and then we get spanked and we run back to our Father. We ultimately have won the battle through Jesus Christ, praise God, or excuse me, the war. But the battle sometimes, the Bible says the, the battle belongs to the Lord. If the battle belongs to the Lord, what are we doing in defeat? So what does spiritual warfare have to do with this? Everything. And it starts with the man behind the pulpit when he speaks to the church. Churches don't speak today of spiritual warfare. Check it out. Satan's chief job is to make himself unbelievable. Think about that. That's his, that is his sole job, is to make himself unlike himself. We see it in the world all around us. I grew up and, you know, the, the devil's got a little red pitchfork, you know, and all this stuff. I mean, they make fun of him. We'll be looking at in a little bit for a Second Corinthians chapter 11. Where Paul tells you what he does. He doesn't disguise himself as a mean God. He disguises himself as an angel of light because he does not want you to see him. And now this world rightly calls Satanism humanism now. It's not Satanism so much anymore. It's humanism. And we could go on. He's a real foe. He's out there. And as we see, what I love about the Word of God is if you read it in context, remember this. When you seek sense, seek the literal sense. When the context makes sense or else you land in nonsense. In other words, you take the context of the passage and you make sense out of what, it, what we're talking about here. And a lot of times the Bible go in, in successive order. Look at verse 7. So we have in verse 6, excuse me, humbling ourselves. And the mighty hand of God is exalting us. Look at verse 7. Casting all of our care upon him. Does that, wait a minute, casting some of our care? But, but as humans, because we like to be in charge, we start saying, okay, all care. Well, what, what does that mean? Does that mean just the big things? Does that mean just my finances and just this? No, it means all things. We take all things to Him. 
We cast all of our care. What is a care? A care is a worry. A care is, uh, we saw last week, Monday, and by the way, uh, we're, if you can make it Monday, we're, we're in the parables. Last week we, we talked about, uh, in the week before, a little bit about stony ground. Remember the seed of the sower? Four soils there. First soil doesn't even barely get a time to get the seed wet because Satan snatches it away. The second soil is stony soil where it doesn't have much depth in it. When the word offends, for whatever reason, it's gone. The third soil is what most people have a hard time with, especially young Christians. They get the seed falls down. They have the cares of this world, the thorns, choke it out. But the desire of other things enter in and it makes the word unfruitful and so forth. Then we have the fourth soil, the good soil. A care of this world, Jesus and Matthew chapter 6 is probably the best discord about worry and care. We must take everything to Him, casting all of our care upon Him because He cares for you. All of it. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you right now, unless you obey chapter 7 or verse 7, you're going to be in trouble. If you disobey verse 7 in your spiritual life, you are going to be harassed beyond necessary means. Are you casting all your care upon him today? I want, you know, you ask yourself that. We all have cares. He's not only going to sustain us. You know, Paul in Philippians 4, 6, and I, I hope that you really, really study these passages. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Or the King James says, be careful for nothing, but in everything. So you have, be careful for nothing, but over here you have, but in everything. So you have a double negative here that means a positive as far as the Christian goes. You are anxious for nothing, negative, but in everything. So you have no room there left of going, look out God, I will take care of this. So Paul says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You know that one of the things that the devil does in your life is try to take the peace away from it. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the same area they, they describe Satan's role of stealing, killing, and destroying in the same passage. He says, I, but I came to give life and give it abundantly. One of the things when we don't cast all cares upon, upon the Lord Jesus Christ is that Satan seeks to steal away our peace. Whenever you do not cast your cares upon the Lord, that's what Satan does. This is going right after your peace. We cast all care upon him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Again, that whole chapter. Trust in the Father's care. We see that so often. Because He cares for you. Casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. Wow. Be sober, verse 8. Spiritual warfare. Be sober. Be vigilant. 
Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Look at these words for a second. Sober, vigilant, adversary. Sober, vigilant, adversary. This is serious business here. Something's going on here that the average Christian has no idea about. We need to be serious back in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is serious. Is that hand be serious? We need to be serious, brethren, about our following and walking with Christ because our adversary is bent on your demise. Bent. He's serious. In fact, I can honestly say that he's serious than most Christians. <laughs> most Christians don't give it another thought. Uh, hey. Be sober. Be vigilant. You know what the word vigilant means? Watchful. Alert. Thank you. Vigilant. My sons know that term, and so have all of you that have been in the military. Because of the military, be vigilant. Can you imagine going out into uh, a territory of the enemy and, and not being vigilant? That's what a lot of Christians do. Let me tell you something. Satan's fat. And he's full of greasy fat. You know why? He's fed on too many Christians. He's had his way with Christians too long. And that's why the church of Jesus Christ is weak today. I want you to read some. I want to read something again fresh to you today uh, that I've read before. And I love this, and this is just one of many. We could, we, there are scriptures, again, from Genesis to Revelation with how Satan attacks God's people. But I wanted to show you one, okay? Remember Elisha, this is in 2 Kings 6. It's important to understand that Elisha was in Dothan. We have the Assyrians that were surrounding him, and the king of Syria said this. He wants to know where this Elisha is, Okay? One of his servants came to the king and says, you know what? He says, this, this Elisha, who is a prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words, God, is, is he's a prophet. And that's why he's, he, he's eluding you. And that's why your plans always fail. And that's why this and that happens. Listen to this. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. It sounds like Herod, doesn't it? The wise men. Hey, go and follow that star, man, that I may go and worship him. King says, go and see where it is that I may go to him. Surely he is in Dothan. Listen to this. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now this is a picture of your enemy. All ready to, ready to just do you in. This is what Elisha said. Oh no, what are we going to do? You're right. I forgot to cast all my cares upon God, so we're doomed. No, Elisha said this. Do not fear for those who are with us. 
or excuse me, for those that are with us are more than those that are with him. Listen to this. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is the one of the examples of spiritual warfare. We cast all anxiety upon him. All of our cares would come to him. Everything, Lord, this is your day. Do with it what you will. We're in constant communication with him. That is another avenue that I think that a lot of Christians stumble in. Are you in constant communication with your God? Are you praying constantly? That doesn't mean you've got to constantly have your, your, you know, who could drive, who could do anything. But it, it, it's a conscious understanding of him. It's Lord, it's sharing in his joy. It's sharing in his presence. God, I am so, I don't know what to do, but I know you do. I don't understand, but I know you are. Jesus said, I promise I'll never leave you, forsake you, or fail you. So we cast all I care on him. We're sober. In other words, we're watching. We're sober-minded. We're not, we're not infiltrated with cares of this life. We're not, we're not drunk on wine. We're not letting some other spirit entertain our mind, but we're fixed. We're sober-minded on God. We're vigilant. This is a war. And I'm on war, the battleground, until my Lord picks me off. Because this is the way it's got to be. My adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's walking about. We read in Job uh, chapter 1 verse 7, chapter 2 verse 2 and other places. When, when Satan's before the Lord, he said, where have you been? He says, walking to and fro about the whole earth. Walking to and fro about the whole earth. He is constantly on the prowl. Constantly. And I believe that if there is one way that Satan knows that he has a, that he can deal any kind of a blow, he can't deal with death blow, but that's to God's most precious possession, that's his people. And his people are asleep in the light. They have no idea about the spiritual warfare we are involved in. Seeking whom he may devour. Devour. Now I want to tell you real quick, I want to back up what I said before about Satan, is his desire is that he would stay hidden. Look at this spiritual battle in the pulpit. And the spiritual battle of false teaching and false brethren that enter in. Paul says they're false apostles. They're deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. There's a lot of people up there that should be and not be behind the pulpit. They should not be in charge of a church because I'll tell you what, if I was a if I was a coach and I was setting up my, my football team and I wanted to guard my quarterback, I would put in there the best guardsmen I can that took their job seriously. He said they, they transfer themselves in the apostles of Christ. Jesus said, I called you. I called you as my apostles. But these people go, they, they, weren't, they weren't sent, they just went. <laughs> and no wonder for Satan himself, this is 2 Corinthians 11, 
verses 14. And no wonder, for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing. It is no great thing. In other words, it is not a burden to him to do this. It's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. That's how he works. We're in a warfare. He seeks around and he's roaring, seeking who he may devour. But look at verse 9, resist him. Resist him. You can't do that on your own strength. You cannot do that on your own strength. Steadfast in the faith. Are you steadfast? What is the faith? The faith is the whole revealed word of God. It's our faith in Jesus Christ. It's our faith that we are His and His alone. It's our faith that we're new creatures. It's our faith that our sins are forgiven. It's our faith He's the returning King. It's our faith that if we abide in Him, that we will not uh, be ashamed of His coming. It's the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, I believe, was have faith in God. That's our faith. So resist Him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by a brotherhood in the world. James chapter 4, verse 7. James says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And he will stay close at hand. See, that's why I love this church. No. And he will flee from you. He cannot stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what part of spiritual warfare that a lot of us don't see in the Gospels? When Jesus went over uh, the Sea of Gennesaret, and he went up the, the hillside in the tombs, and he saw this man whom they tried to bound, okay? Human strength tried to bound him, chain him up. He'd break the chains. He was continually cutting himself and so forth. What happened when Jesus came to the shore? The power of Jesus Christ, he came running and knelt before him. Where the spirits in him even said, are you coming to torment us before the time? That same power, the Lord Jesus Christ resides within us. And if we resist him, and we submit. You know, remember when we were in James, you can't resist until you submit. You can't do the resisting until you do the submitting. So the scripture properly says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee it from you. The same experiences are happening in the world by your brotherhood, by the true body of Christ. We're going through the same things all over the world. Satan is tempting. Satan is is on the prowl. He's there. He wants to get you afraid. He wants to take away your confidence. He wants to take away your joy. He wants to kill all type of testimony. I want to say this before before we, we end. Um, verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. Again, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by brotherhood in the world. I want to, I want to say something to you in these last couple minutes. I would highly admonish you 
highly encourage you to make up your mind now. So when temptation comes, and it will come, the decision has already been made. Don't try to fight unprepared when the battle comes. Prepare yourself now. Make up your mind. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm not retreating. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation, Paul says. Make up your mind now. Who's going to be your master? Who are you going to follow? When that temptation comes, in whatever way it's going to come, we all have temptations that tempt us all the time, and we know them. Yes, we all have the same ones, but yes, some of us have different ones. Some of us have a temptation uh, for lust in certain areas, which other of us might not. But nonetheless, make up your decision now, so when it comes, your decision has been made. Do not succumb to temptation. Because when it comes, my decision has already been made. He is the Lord of my life. He has access to every fiber of my being. That includes my thought life. Make that decision now. So when temptation comes, your decision has already been made. I am Christ. He is mine. I am not going to submit to the things of the world. I've already submitted myself to Christ. My heart is already in His hand. My treasure is already with Him. He is my life. Do it now. So when the temptation comes, you're not fighting to try to find a decision, or you're not fighting to try to get that sudden strength. You know, I remember on, on one particular situation, somebody was accustomed to searching the internet. And, well, after you do that, is all you know, you have, they, you have a tendency to whatever you go on the most, it'll either pop up or something like that. Well, he had been in, and this particular individual had, had succumbed to pornography and all that before, and, and just, just sites that he shouldn't have been on. We made that decision. And unfortunately, he still had that same computer and stuff like that, so when things would pop up, that decision was made. They didn't pop up and he have to go, oh, you know, and try to find a certain strength that he does not have. He has to try to find a quick solution because temptation comes upon a man like that. You don't have time. Do it now. So when the temptation comes in, you don't worry about time. The decision has been made. And let me tell you what, Jesus will not rule somebody who does not want him to. People say, wow, really? Yes, really. That is one of the evils of Calvinism and other things. God will exalt a man who is lowly and contrite and humble of heart that trembles at his word 
They know that he's the high and lofty one. We've made that decision that, oh Lord, my God, you are my king and my God. All I have is yours. My decision has been made. And now when temptations come, you know what? Blow as they will. That's the way it is. You know, the Bible says that a, a righteous man falling down before the wicked is like, a, is like a muddied stream, a polluted well. And that's why. Spiritual warfare. Your enemy is out there. But look at this. Verse 10, but, he, but may the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, you have suffered a little while. This is the end. He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Make that decision now, my friends. Look at that. After you suffer a little while, this is a promise of God. He's going to perfect you. He's going to establish you. He's going to strengthen you, and he's going to settle you. Some of us in our Christian life are stilted, and we, should, we aren't advanced as we should be because we're flirting with temptation. We've not made that decision. We're lukewarm. We don't know if, if, if really what we want to do. Some of you need to wrestle with God now. Even as, ja even as Jacob did. He says, I'm not going to let go of you until I receive a blessing. We need, to, we need to wrestle with ourselves and say, I'm not going to let go until I know that Christ is mine and I am his. And he is welcome into any avenue of my being. Is he welcome into your thought life? Is he welcome into your time off? Is he welcome into your home when nobody else is around and nobody sees you? He should be welcome everywhere because we're his. We've been bought with a price. He's going to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And why? The outcome is always going to be for our good and his glory. Look at verse 11. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus and faith, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. Look at this. That this is the true grace of God in which you stand. This is it. You know, one, one thing I love, ah, it's just amazing. I'm almost done. Thank you for hanging in here. This is, uh, I hope this has been instructive. Um, Again, pastors are restricted by time, which, which uh, always runs contrary to me. But Paul says this about the gospel. Remember at the beginning, we're talking about the gospel. The gospel saves us, puts us on that foundation, gives us a, a complete forgiveness of sins, a place with Christ in the heavenly realms, and we're, and we're, we're seated, and now we're to grow. Paul says this about the gospel. He says, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are saved. So you stand on this gospel. This is the foundation of your Christian life. You're saved by the gospel of Christ. Now we get Peter, who started out his epistle, talking about not only have we been uh, elect, not only talking about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the Spirit, but that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as, as Paul says in Ephesians, 
Peter says it in another way that we've been blessed by the living hope to Christ to raise us from the dead and so on and so forth. He ends this epistle as Paul ended 1 Corinthians by saying, this gospel I preached to you is the gospel in which you stand. Peter is explaining the gospel, explaining what it entails. Yes, we've been saved from our sin. Now we're Christians. We're, we're born ones of Christ. Now we're growing. And he, say, he goes through all this, which includes spiritual warfare. And he says, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. It's the all-inclusive gospel. It's the, it's the shedding of the blood of Christ. It's the going in the tomb. It's raising in the third day. It's ascending to the Father who is, who is at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. It's the Holy Spirit coming down. It's the where we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And everything we do, we do with the hope of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and so on and so forth. And now, not only correct understanding of where we're to be and what we're to do and our enemy around here, He's saying all this is included in the grace of God by which you stand. And he closed by saying, She who is in Babylon elect together with you greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ Jesus. And my friends, he ends this by saying we need to greet one another with a kiss of love. You know, the Bible says in the second psalm, and I love the way that King James put this, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. You know, that is a term of affection. Are we affectionately love for one another? Because that's what's going to keep us walking with Christ, is love. Make up your mind now. Follow him now. Fully. Because as Peter said, he was zealous on saying these things and bringing these things to reminder because Jesus had told him shortly he's going to go away. Paul says the same thing. He says, the same, say the same thing as to you as me, not tedious, but to you it's profitable. Oh, it's just another sermon. It's just another this. It's just another that. No, it's an admonition to follow Christ today. Make that decision today. Father, I just thank you for this epistle. Lord, I just pray that you take away the rough edges that I put there and that the pure word would plant itself deep within our heart, that we would realize that the love of God knows no bounds, and yet we need to understand that there's an adversary out there. The one that wants to destroy us. That is bent on doing what he can in these last days. It's going to get worse. And I pray we would be solidified. We'd be ready. That we'd love one another. If it gets worse in these days to come. And we're parted from one another. We don't have a place to come so comfortably like most parts of the world. I pray that we would ask ourselves, will we be able to stand? Will we be able to stay strong and say, come Lord Jesus? 
Father, I pray that we'd be ready. We'd be ready, Lord, for your coming. And I pray as the Apostle John says, Come, Lord Jesus. And Father, in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.